How are we all doing? I mean, it's Christmas now. It's the 1st of December. We can talk about it. We're all excited, I can tell. Um, yes, I mean, it's just flowing over the enthusiasm of, of Christmas. But it looks great, doesn't it? I'm sure you'll agree. Uh, thanks again to um, Angie and the team that worked really hard over the, not just yesterday, putting it all up, but over the last few weeks. We really appreciate all that they've done. It's really their connect group as well that did the work. So we're just really grateful. Um, but yeah, exciting season. It is if you love Christmas anyway. Um, we are going back to our Luke series today. Good, we're all excited about that as well. Um, <clears throat> uh, Adam had a little break from it last week uh, when he was talking about freedom. Um, Paul McCormack appreciated talking about freedom, being Scottish and all that. Um, if you've seen, uh, what's the film, Paul? Braveheart, that's it. He loves, that's Paul's favourite film. Um, but we're going to look at Luke today. And it's quite a, uh, a big verse, verses that we're looking at. It's actually, what is it? I think it's nine verses that we're looking at today. But actually, this is quite weighty, what we're looking at. Now, if you know me, I, 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 I'm quite a light-hearted person. I like a joke. Um, but this is quite serious, what we're looking at today. And just before I got up to speak, I felt the Lord reminded me about something that a good friend of mine used to say to me. Uh, he's a kind of father in the faith, Norman Blows, uh, <clears throat> used to say to me, um, and many others, don't take yourself too seriously, but take God seriously. And that kind of summarizes really what we're looking at today. Don't take yourself too seriously. Don't be so intense about yourself, but take him seriously. So we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 9. As you remember, we're going to be there for a while. We're going to be there until the middle of February. We've got a little break over Christmas, so don't worry. We're not just going to keep plowing on verse by verse every week. But, uh, so we're going to go from verse 18, chapter 9, verse 18. I forgot my glasses as well today, but I think it'll all be fine. <coughs> right, there we go. It's all right, it's there in big. I can see it in big. Right, so from verse 18. Now, it, I'll read it from there because it's slightly different. And it happens that while he was praying alone, this is Jesus, the disciples were with him. And he questioned them saying, who do the people say that I am? Now, remember, we've just left that scene of Jesus feeding the 5,000 that Jesus spoke so well on um, a few weeks ago. Who do the crowds, who do the people say that I am? And they answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. Moving on. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Wow. We're going to move on to the next lot of verses from verse 23 in a little while, but we're just going to look at this bit first. <clears throat> Now, Jesus was praying alone. It says the disciples were with him, and he asks 
who do the crowds or who do the people say I am? And this is a major turning point in Luke here with this confession of Peter, of you're the Christ. And Jesus, right at the beginning, again, is modeling prayer in a busy life, busy ministry, but he takes time to pray. We see throughout Luke, actually, he always prays before important events. Through the narrative of Luke, it shows Jesus praying before his baptism, before selecting the 12 disciples, before this Peter's confession, before the transfiguration, before teaching the Lord's Prayer, and before Peter's denial. And here, he may have even been praying that the disciples, this group, truly see and grasp who he is. And Jesus turns into the, to this strategy, I don't know if you remember, if you were here a few weeks ago, turns to the strategy I was talking about, about asking questions. And Jesus realizes um, in the next slide about what it says in Proverbs 20, verse 5, that the purposes in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. And he does this by asking this less threatening question first. Who do the crowds, who do people say I am? It's not so direct. What about others? Who do they say I am? And then they touch on these similar comments that we saw earlier at the beginning of chapter 9 about uh, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. But then Jesus goes for the heart. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Now, what doesn't work? As I, it doesn't work like telling people stuff or speaking at them, but these questions engage people. They get, it gets them thinking, and Jesus does it throughout Luke, really. He did it in chapter 7 with Simon. Do you remember the tale of the two debtors? And he asks Simon uh, which debtor will love, the, uh, will love him more, the one who was forgiven much or the one who was forgiven little. He does it in uh, chapter 10 when he's talking about eternal life. He says, what is written in the law? And then we see it again in... in um, Verse 25, today what we're going to look at. And then the you, the you is plural here. It's emphasized in the Greek. So he's not just speaking at Peter here. Peter's the kind of spokesman for the disciples. But he says, you, who do you say I am? And Peter's statement here, his declaration is hugely significant for the disciples and all of Israel. Because he says, you're the Christ. You are the Christ of God. And this statement is hundreds and hundreds of years in the making. This Christ, Christos in Greek, translated from the Hebrew, from the term anointed or Messiah, is, is mentioned many times throughout the Old Testament for, to describe uh, kings and priests and prophets. The anointed one, will be linked in the mind of Jews to David, King David, and this anointed king of Israel. The anointed one would be the light of hope for all of Israel. So this is a huge statement. Huge, huge. God promised that through the throne of David, it, the throne would be established forever through the prophet Nathan. Let's just read in 2 Samuel 7. Um, from verse 11 to 16. 
It says this in 2 Samuel. This is the prophet Nathan speaking to David. He says, From the time that I appointed you judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, talking about when he dies, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He's talking about Jesus. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, talking about the iniquity laid upon Jesus, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That is why this is so significant what Peter is saying today, because this is hundreds of years in the making. You're the Christ. This was a promise of hope. This was a blessing for the nation, which we'll read about in Isaiah, and that Isaiah prophesied as well. By the time this, the first century came, the, the term Messiah or Christ, denoted this kingly figure who, like David, would triumph in the last days over Israel's enemies. This is the first glimpse of realisation of who Jesus is for the disciples. Their understanding of who Jesus is hasn't really quite been stretched to the limit just yet. That only really happens when he's resurrected. That will only decisively bring them across the threshold. But this declaration from from Peter is a start. And as readers, we need to identify with this moment, especially with what, is, what we're going to read from verse 23 to 27. We need to decide, <coughs> excuse me, decide who is he? Especially with what's to come, the questions that are going to come in a little while, decide, is he the Christ? And this question And our answer is the most important thing we face in this life. I told you it was serious this morning. I'll try and throw in some jokes halfway through. But who do you, who do you say who Jesus is? So many people, now I I know this because I talk to people all the time, I've been doing Alpha for many years, people want to philosophize about who Jesus is. Well, Yeah, he's this moral teacher. He's a guide for life. He's an example to follow. No, he is the promised one of old. He's the one who brings deliverance. He's the one who God is working through. He is not the messenger. He's the message. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only one that will satisfy your hunger for meaning and purpose in life. He's the only one who satisfies our hunger for life beyond death. He is the only one that satisfies our hunger for forgiveness. This is Jesus. He's the Christ of God. And Peter, he's now agreeing with the angels what the angels said in chapter 2, verse 11, that Christ is born. He's agreeing with even the demons in chapter 4. They said he's the Christ. They knew. This is phenomenal statement here from Jesus. But who do you, who do you this morning say who he is? Because it is so crucial. 
Is he really Christ? Is he really the Messiah in your life? Now, from verse 21 to 22, what what happens next, I think, will have shocked the disciples. Because they're just starting to realize who he is. And then, let's read again. He warned them and instructed them Don't tell this to anyone. Bearing in mind what we've just considered, what we've just realized, don't tell this to anyone, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. What? Jesus, hang on a minute. We're just figuring out who you are. What are you saying? You're saying you're going to die, but we've just, we're just beginning to figure out. We've, we've seen all this stuff. For us, centuries later, thinking about Jesus' suffering is basic to the church's message. But to these guys who are just figuring out who Jesus is... You know, they've just seen these miracles that we've seen in chapter 8. The healings, the storms, the demons being cast out. They're just figuring out. And then he's saying he's going to die? Just try and put yourself in their shoes. But what is also amazing, what we have to appreciate when we're reading this text, is that Jesus' response is when we read it carefully, his response is that he's actually agreeing with Peter. He's saying, yeah, you're right, Peter. I am the Christ. Because he says, don't tell this to anyone. Because he is indeed the Christ, the Messiah. So many other faith figures point to others. Only Jesus says, it's me. Only Jesus says, I've come to seek and save the lost. He assumed authority to forgive sins. He said that one day he'll judge the world. So when he's saying, tell this to no one, he's saying, you're right, Peter, it's me. That's what he's saying. You might, you might expect, I, you know, I was reading and studying this over the last few weeks, thinking, well, the, Jesus, surely there'd be some big announcement now. Surely, you know, this triumphant celebration, people are realizing you're the Christ. But no, Jesus says, no, tell this to no one. This restriction is temporary. Because once Jesus has been raised from the dead, the disciples are empowered and expected to take the message about Jesus into the world. But why then the instruction to tell no one? I think Jesus didn't want there to be confusion because there was this expectation that the coming Messiah would come as this mighty military commander who would overthrow the oppressors of God's people and take over, because they're under rule from the Romans right now. But one day, of course, Jesus will exercise ultimate authority over the whole world, but not yet. And he makes it clear in verse 22 what and how his messianic ministry would work not with political triumph or military power. Instead, he aligns himself with this prophetic vision from 700 years before in Isaiah 53 that we've had a little glimpse of already from the suffering servant. He's aligning himself with this when he says these statements from verse 21. In Isaiah 53, 
It says, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, as, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, that word again, iniquity of us all. Wow. That's what Jesus is aligning himself with. This, this was 700 years before Christ. He makes it clear that his path is not of this imminent victory, but of terrible suffering. There is such love right here as well, saying that he must suffer, that we can be free. This is what it means, that he is going to suffer so we can be free of our sin and our shame and death. The Son of Man must suffer because God loves the world so much that he sent his one and only Son to die for sinners. Wow. I need a drink. This is, this is quite <coughs> intense stuff, really, what is they're realizing and then what Jesus is saying. We're going to read now from verse 23. Now, Luke 9, verse 23. He said to all. Now, he's just talking to the disciples, and now he's saying, it says, he said to all. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you, truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And we can't just skim over these verses because they're, it's a real serious challenge. You think Jesus is quite bad at PR, really. <laughs> He's just done these amazing miracles. People are starting to realize who he is. Peter's saying, you're the Christ in front of the disciples. And then he's saying, yeah, but if you come after me, you've got to die. No, Jesus, don't say that. Don't say that. All these people, they're starting to you know, really get excited about who you might be. Oh, if you want to follow me, pick up a cross and die. Oh, Jesus. Jesus, why are you saying these things? If we read these seriously, these verses, they must challenge you. Taking up a cross and denying yourself. Now, the cross and crucifixion was an is, fam is famous because of what we know eventually happened to Jesus. 
But the disciples as well would have been well known to them what the crucifixion was because this was effective punishment used by the Romans. It wasn't just this first thing they invented for Jesus. It was effective punishment used by the Romans. And the disciples would have known of the terrible pain and suffering that it meant to carry the crossbeam to the place of crucifixion, being nailed to it, being put onto the upright beam. And we can soften the image, really, through jewellery and modern art, etc. But this was gruesome. And now Jesus is making this, this shift of emphasis and using the cross as an image of discipleship. It's not great PR, is it? Come on, Jesus. Surely you could use something a bit sunnier than that, couldn't you? But Jesus is talking about more than just bearing up under personal hardship or, or just cruel fate, but instead to die to your own will and take up God's will. Firstly, Jesus is talking about the nature of humans because we, we are so liable, so bent on pleasing ourselves, seeking pleasure elsewhere. To die to self. But, and the call of, from Jesus is to follow him. Not just to be a Christian, but to actually follow him and obey his teaching. To be a Christian is to deny oneself every day. As we lean into what might please us in the flesh, we must deny ourselves. Deny temptation. Deny temptation to sin, to lie, to gossip, to get drunk. To sleep with people who aren't our husband or wife. To deny my feelings if they don't line up with the word of God. And we we mustn't confuse either disciples and Christians because they are the same. You know, disciples aren't the really extreme Christians who actually take God on his word, who are the ones who are really on mission. No, a disciple is someone who follows Jesus. And that's what a Christian is. It's not just saying the prayer. That's not it. It's not, well, I've said the prayer, I'm in now. It's all right, I'm safe. No, that's not what a Christian is. It's not, we've just said a few words. It means to surrender yourself, to die to self. That's what a Christian is, a disciple. It's the same thing. Being a Christian doesn't mean you're a fan of Jesus either. But following his teachings about life. Adam talked last week about sanctification, and he asked that question about what are you doing that's slowing down your sanctification process? What sin is in your life? We think, oh, well, no, not us, not the big things. You know, we're not doing any of the, the sex outside marriage or anything like that. But what about the small things? Do you remember before Adam spoke, if you were here in the morning, I, I brought this. A, a picture about, um, I saw this picture of the cupboard under my stairs. And I was saying, you allow in God into all of these rooms, into your big rooms, into the kitchen, living room, etc., but not letting him into the cupboard. What, what, what things have you got under the cupboard, under the stairs? What attitudes? What gossip, drunkenness? You know, I, I've got this great system. Gemma loves it. I've got this great system for when people come round our house to tidy up. I le- we leave it for about an hour just before they come round, and I shove everything under the stairs, and I put stuff in cupboards. When people come round, 
they have pretty much free reign in my house. They can come in the kitchen, they can go to the living room, they, they can go to the bathroom, they, I mean, they can go to the bedroom, that'd be weird, but they can go really wherever they want, but they're not allowed under the stairs. Don't go under the stairs. Don't go in the kitchen cupboard at the end, because that's the junk cupboard. They have free reign, but they're not allowed under the stairs. And we can be like that with Jesus. Go anywhere, but don't go there. But Jesus wants every part of your life. Every part of your life. This is discipleship. Discipleship also, it means repentance. It means to turn the other way. It's not alter your life a bit and you'll be okay. No, it's going in completely the opposite direction. I was going that way, now I'm going that way. Repentance, by the way, is not a condition or a precondition either. It's, otherwise, we sneak in justification by works. I repent because God loves me, not in order for him to love me. Do you understand? Yeah. But denying oneself... Picking up the cross and following Christ is to be a Christian. I, I think I can be in danger of sometimes just enjoying the social setting. I love being in church. I love spending time with Christians because you're all really nice. I like you. You're all nice people. Most of you, yeah. You're... <laughs> We can agree with the morality of it. We can agree with the social issues. But we still don't follow him. The tough stuff, you know, the thing, and when he speaks to us about the stuff under the cupboard, under the stairs. But and when we're considering our discipleship, we shouldn't think of our church attendance, although it is important, or our Bible reading, although very important and good, but is Jesus foremost in our thoughts? Am I really loving him today? Or am I conscious of him today? Or is he just a thought at the end of the day? He is not our cosmic butler. We don't say a prayer and then every time a bit of trouble comes along, we call on the cosmic butler to say, come and help us with our stuff. That's not how it works. Am I really loving him today? Am I following him? Am I letting him shape me and direct my life? Verse 24 says, trying to save your life, you'll lose it. It's the opposite of denying yourself. Trying to gain the whole world is the opposite of denying yourself. To deny yourself and not try and live for now goes against our natural urge, doesn't it? Because we're so focused on now. What's going on now? Everything today is about, in our culture, is about pleasing ourselves, about expressing ourselves, whatever we feel. We should look within. Our desires are who we are. The deeper your desire, the more core it is to your identity. 
It's, I watch a lot of Disney movies because I've got three kids, and to be honest, I quite like Disney movies, but it's the message of most Disney movies these days <clears throat> is to look within, and you will be amazing and wonderful and victorious. It's a very westernized view, and the greatest sin in our culture today is to restrict people from being who they really feel they are. But Jesus says, no, deny self. And that will involve saying no to some of your deepest desires and longings and ambitions. That will involve saying no to some of your deepest desires and longings and ambitions. Jesus is saying there will be a time in your discipleship when you might feel like you are losing your life. But whoever loses their life for his sake will save it. Yielding to Jesus is the means by where we truly find who we are meant to be. As you deny yourself, as you follow Jesus, you become the true you who you are supposed to be, who God thought up in the first place. Let me just repeat that. As you deny yourself and follow Jesus, you become the true you who God thought up in the first place. Because we start getting in the way. To be the true you is to deny self, to be more like Christ. We become our true selves. Now, we don't all become this monotone or look the same people because in this weird paradoxical way, as we all become more like Christ, we are all very different. But we're in this beautiful mosaic called the church. But the more you become more like him, the more you are the true you. The more Adam becomes more like Christ, the more he becomes the true Adam. And the more I become more like Christ, I become the, the true Ian that he created. But we are still different. That is why the world's view is so twisted, because the best way to be the true you is, is you know, feel, feel like this. <clears throat> but... He, Jesus says, deny self. Deny self. Follow Jesus. <clears throat> Verse 25 again is linked with what was before. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The human heart struggles to deny itself because it is so looking for gain now. Because it's stuck on selfie mode. Have you noticed? I mean, some of you guys who might be in the slightly older generation might not understand this. This will probably weigh better in this afternoon. But people are stuck on selfie mode because wherever you go now, where people see this amazing monument or just beautiful place to go, they're in selfie mode and they... And they Instead of looking at this amazing thing, they've got their big head in the way and they're taking a picture, this selfie. Now, I appreciate some of you are a lot more classy than that, but <clears throat> the world is stuck in selfie mode. 
they see something, oh, I'm just going to get my, my, my face in as well, because they're stuck in selfie mode. It, and it's so shaped around that, because you know we have Facebook, Twitter, etc. So many people want to take pictures, put p- pictures of themselves and put on and talk about themselves and give their own opinions, because everybody's stuck on selfie mode. Do you know, in 2 Timothy... Three, it says, in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful and unholy. The unhappiest people in the world are those that are stuck in selfie mode. But you know, there's something amazing on your phone. There's this button on your phone that turns the camera around. It faces outwards, so you don't have to look at your own ugly mug. The best thing you can do, the best thing you can stare at and gaze at is something more beautiful than yourself. David, in Psalm 27, he he appreciated, he understood this. He he wasn't stuck in selfie mode, because he said... One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I am not stuck in selfie mode. No, he says, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. David wanted to gaze at the beauty of the Lord. He had discovered the secret of life, and that was to turn the camera around. Revelation 5 shows what heaven is like. Everyone is gathered around the throne of God, singing holy, holy, holy. Everyone's out of selfie mode. All the attention, all the glory belongs to him. Let's turn the camera around. There is so much joy available for us when we realize when we take the attention off ourselves and onto others and ultimately onto God. Let me read <coughs> this, what Paul writes in Philippians. I don't think I put this on here actually, but <coughs> 2 Philippians 4, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, um, says, let each of you lot Look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus came not to be served but to serve. Galatians 2 says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This is the picture of baptism, isn't it? We saw all those people baptized the other week. That's the message, is that we die as we go under the water. Now Christ, as we're raised up, lives in us. 
You know, he partly wants to save us from ourselves as well. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? Focusing on this life. Because the enemy loves to, tr- loves to trick us into thinking this is it. Loves to th- trick us into thinking this is it. We want to make ourselves comfortable. Well, if I just do really well in this part of my life or my career, maybe then I'll start to serve God then. Or once you know, the kids have got older or when they've left school or when they get into secondary school, I can do that. No, God, you know, the best time to serve God, follow him, grow in your discipleship is now. Yeah. It's now. Because he's saying, oh, yeah, but you, you won't be very comfortable if you do that now. Uh, but what about, what about yeah, you, you might struggle with that. But no, now is the time. Now is the time. But we want to make ourselves comfortable. We want to get stuff. In um, James... Three. So we, we can make these plans and we, we want to do all this stuff but, and we just don't even consult him and we so focus on the now. In James 4, did, I did put this on, great. It says this, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That's encouraging, isn't it? Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. We can make all sorts of plans without even consulting the one who holds our life in his hands, who controls our very next breath. If we go back to um, Luke again, I think it's right at the end anyway. From verse 26, he says, For whoever is ashamed of me, and my words, the Son of Man, be ashamed of him when he comes in, and his glory, and the glory of the Father, and the holy angels. Now, I think this goes beyond just the lack of, a lack of nerve occasionally. Oh, I didn't speak to my friend that time at, at work, or I didn't speak to that lady on, on the street when she asked me what I believed. It's, this is, goes beyond just uh, you know losing your bottle occasionally, because... Hey, we all do that. He's not saying, yeah, you, that time when you said you didn't, or you could have spoke up and you didn't. That's not really what this is talking about. But this, uh, we're talking about the Son of Man as well. He's referring again to himself. This, what he's talking about, this is a denial of heart. This is a constant denial, constant rejection of his shaping and his guidance for your life. And saying no. I don't want you in my life. This also tells us to be ready. Be ready. Because one day, he will return. There will be judgment. One day, Jesus will return.
who you say he is. These are challenging verses if we say that he's the Christ. Verse 27, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, I think this alludes a little to the transfiguration, which is we're going to look at next week, but it, it also is talking about the resurrection that is going to happen and the Pentecost, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is coming in the resurrection and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. So, how will you respond to Jesus today? Who do you say he is? Is he Lord? Is he Christ? Are you ready to respond to him and deny self, your will, and say, Lord, let your will be done? Are you ready to give him everything? Are you ready to come to him? This life is like a mist. What we do here in this short time affects all eternity. I want to make my life count whilst I'm here. And the best way I can do that is by following his call and his will. Are you ready to respond to him today? Why don't we stand? Let's pray. <clears throat> Why don't you, just as a sign to, to, to the Lord, if you want to respond to him today, just put your hands out. Say, Lord, we love you. And we want to make our lives count for you. Holy Spirit, will you come and enable us today? Give us boldness, Lord, but help us. We want to follow you. Lord, sometimes it's not easy to deny ourselves. Sometimes we have these desires, these longings, and we feel like, oh, that's the, the most prevalent feeling that we have. But Lord, you call us to deny ourselves. Lord, will you help us deny self, Lord, today? For those of us that might be struggling with that, and we want to follow you, we want to be true followers of you, Jesus. Will you come and rest upon us, Lord? We want to be disciples. We don't just want to be Christians by name, but we want to be disciples, ones that, who bring light to those around us. We want to be salt and light to those around, Lord. Holy Spirit, come. It's just feel like we just need to stand before him for a moment. Why don't you set the, your gaze upon him right now?
Come, Holy Spirit. Gaze upon the Christ who came to die for you. He's the promised one. He is the message. He's saying, come to me today, my child. Come and I will help you be the true you that you're supposed to be, that I made you to be. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, I just want to give my life again to you today and say, come and work in me. If you want to do that, you can just say that to him, just in the quietness of your heart. Come, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I want to be more like you. Will you increase in us and we decrease, Lord? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.